I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on, and today we're going to be in two separate passages. The first one is Revelation chapter, thir- uh, chapter 3, and the second one is Romans chapter 13. Now, I get it. These might be hard to find. If you've been watching this series, you understand that this little thing we call a book is not a book at all. It's a library filled with 66 books. Uh, so, Sometimes locating an individual book amongst those 66 can be a challenge. So let me give you some clues, some hints on how best to locate uh, Revelation 3 and Romans 13. If you're in a physical Bible, I would encourage you just to open up to the table of contents. There is literally no shame in that. Uh, Open to the table of contents. You'll find Revelation is the very last book of your Bible. Uh, So uh, Revelation, you can actually just go to the end and flip forward until you get to chapter 3. Romans is a little further in. uh, So in the table of contents, you'll find Romans under the big section called the New Testament. So locate the New Testament. And then just a few books in is the book of Romans. Now, if you're in an app, just pull down the list of the books of the Bible, and you'll find that Romans is about two-thirds of the way down that list. And of course, Revelation is the very last book on that list. So Revelation 3. Romans 13. Those are the two primary passages we'll be in today. Now, before I go any further, we've had a passage that we have looked at every single uh, week of this particular message series. It's Psalm 119, verse 105, and it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, I've explained and unpacked this passage uh, in the previous two messages, and if you haven't seen those, go to our website or our YouTube page and watch them. They're great uh, messages on how to read the Bible. But uh, I just know to say, uh, I just want to say that Psalm 119, 105, and, and matter of fact, the entirety of Psalm 119 is all about the importance of God's word and how it, it directs our path, it it directs our steps, our decisions, our our life choices. The directions that we go. But in order to get that guidance, we must understand how to read this book and how not to read this book, quite honestly. Today, I want to talk about understanding the big picture of the Bible, the history of the Bible. Uh, My son and I, uh, I've got a 12-year-old son named Knox, and Knox and I have been going through uh, over the summer some of the Marvel movies, and we've we've been skipping a few of them and watching some of the others, and um, I I found myself through this uh, watching series that I've done with Knox, uh, I've caught myself having to pause at certain points in some of the movies and having to explain some of the backstory that has taken place in one of the movies that for one reason or another we didn't watch. Uh, and so there's been several times throughout these movies that I've had to pause and go, okay, Knox, now what they're talking about took place in this movie that we didn't see, uh, but this is what happened and here's the history and here's the background. Because without that background, there are some parts of those movies that you fully just can't understand at all or you won't understand them fully. Uh, you'll be confused about certain aspects of the movies. Uh, there's a whole history. There's a timeline. There's, there's uh, moments of the history of that Marvel universe, that, those Marvel movies, that you have to understand in order to understand some of the latter movies, the later movies. And, and so Knox and I have been doing that. And interestingly, interestingly enough, the Bible is the same way. 
there are parts of the Bible that if you don't have a full uh, understanding of the history uh, and, and what's happening in the moment that those words are being written or what's happening in the moment to the, the readers of that particular book, then you're not going to fully understand or you may not understand at all what is being said in that text, in that passage from the Bible. And I, today I want to unpack that. But why do we not read and try to understand the history of God's Word? What's taking place historically when we're reading a passage? i, I got to be honest, I think that a lot of it just comes down to laziness. Uh, I, I mentioned last week that sometimes when we read our Bible, uh, we're, we're just trying to consume as much of it as possible, or maybe we've got a checklist that I've got to read these three chapters today, or these five chapters, or these two chapters today, and and I'm already tight on time, and so I can't go in and study the historical setting or the culture or anything like that because I don't have time to do that and read these three chapters or these five chapters. And guys, I, I want to caution us on approaching the Bible that way. I, I did this last week. When we read the Bible, it should be more about quality over quantity. Uh, so when you sit down with God's Word, I would encourage you to be less concerned about making sure that you read the three chapters that you've assigned yourself for that day and not ne don't neglect studying the history or digging deep into a passage that may be difficult to understand or may be confusing. Instead, don't worry about the checklist. Don't worry about the quantity as much as you are concerned about the quality and understanding and retaining what you're reading. Uh, that actually leads me to today's big idea. Uh, I want to throw the big idea out first thing today uh, rather than later on in the message because the big idea kind of impacts everywhere we're going today with this topic. The big idea today is don't be lazy when approaching God's Word. I, I know it's not catchy and it doesn't rhyme or anything like that, but I think it's simple and so impactful. We should not ever be hasty or lazy or haphazard when we read this book, this library. You see, we need to approach it carefully and intentionally with an attitude uh, of studying and understanding, not with an attitude of just reading as many chapters as possible and walking away. So today I want to talk about the importance of understanding the history of what is taking place in God's Word when you're reading a, a passage. So uh, you need to understand things like the history, the geography, like where uh, is the, the writer talking about or what is he talking about geographically in the nation of Israel or in Rome or, or in Corinth or, or whatever, Egypt. Uh, you need to understand the culture uh, of the people that he's speaking to in that day and age. And I'm going to give you some examples today of, of these different aspects. You see, when we try to understand the Bible we can't drag in our own modern understandings into that reading because our modern culture and, and our understanding of history and science and all those different things did not exist in the times when this library was written. 
So we can't self-impose our modern understandings or our modern culture or our modern use of language. We have to understand their culture and their use of language, their context, their geography. You see, our views and our biases that are based on our modern understandings, those views and biases don't belong. They don't fit into the context of that ancient world, that world in which this library was written. So I want to spend today giving you some examples of this because I want you to understand the importance. So the first thing that I would encourage you here is is a little more big picture. I want you uh, to maybe be a student of biblical history. Uh, For example, what's going on in the history of Israel in the Old Testament passage that you're reading? I want to throw up a graphic. Uh, This graphic here is a graphic of uh, kind of the the first half of the history of the Old Testament as far as the books are laid out. Um, There are two graphics that I'm going to show you. I just want to stick with this first one for a moment. I want you to see here that um, when you understand what's going on in the history of the nation of Israel, you can better understand what's happening uh, in the writings of a particular book. If you understand what has happened historically and what's about to happen historically, it may open up new new ideas uh, that's being unpacked within the text. But, like, let me give you a great example of something that maybe some of you never realized. If you'll look at this graphic, up in the top left, you'll see that uh, Job, the book of Job, is uh, up there at the top. It's early in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, When you study the book of Job, one of the things uh, that, that we understand and we know is that the historical setting of the book of Job is actually in the midst of the middle to later parts of the book of Genesis. Uh, There's an interesting name that's mentioned early on uh, in the book of Job, and it's actually uh, that one of Job's friends is a descendant of the people from one of Abraham's sons. And so we know that Job is taking place somewhere middle way, maybe later part of the book of Genesis. But if you're not studying the history of that particular book and where it takes place in history, you would miss that interesting fact. Uh, Let's go to that second graphic. So there's this second graphic that I'm throwing up, and this is the later half or the later part of the history of Israel as recorded in the Old Testament. And there's a couple things I want you to notice here. Uh, Look at the line of red, the books that are are, uh, on that red line. You see, none of the books that are on this red line can be understood without understanding their place in the history of Israel. You know, some of them are taking place when uh, the Israelites uh, have been, the northern kingdom of Israel has been invaded and the people have been shipped off. Or it have, that book happens right before that takes place and it's a warning about what's to come if they don't repent. Uh, Some of those books happen after the southern kingdom of Judah has been invaded by the Babylonians, and and they've been shipped off. And some of the uh, books, the the writings, are instructions to them about what to do and how to behave and, and how to live as exiles in countries that they don't want to be in. Uh, And so it's under it's important to understand 
where these books happen in the history of Israel. Another example, if you'll look at the lower right corner, you'll see the book of Esther happens after the people of Israel have been allowed to return to the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, after they've been exiled. So they were exiled, you know, the, the nation of Israel, north and south, were both invaded separately. They, they were conquered. They were, the people were mostly shipped away to other parts of the empire that had conquered them. But later on, they were allowed to come back in a few generations later. And Esther happens in the midst of that time when the people are being allowed to come back. And when you understand the, the, the place in history where Esther is taking place, you begin to understand what is being said in the book of Esther even more. So uh, let's move on. Let me give you uh, an example from a passage that we might find in, let's begin in the Old Testament. So Leviticus 19 verse 19 says this, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Now, why would God give the Israelites these kind of odd commands? I mean, in modern day, we breed different kinds of animals together in order to uh, get the best uh, attributes that we are raising those animals for. So you'll mix different kinds, different breeds of cattle, for example, to develop a larger cow that survives better in that particular environment where you're, you've got your herd of cattle. We do this all the time with all sorts of animals. So why is it prohibited here in Leviticus 19 verse 19? Or mixing different kinds of uh, crops together. We do that all the time. Uh, you know, the, there are crops all over the world where you may have half the field is wheat and the, the other half of the field is corn or, or something like that. Uh, and I'm throwing out hypotheticals, but, but we do those kinds of things today. Uh, and especially this last one, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Guys, I can guarantee you this shirt I'm wearing is not pure cotton. It's probably a polyester blend that's got a little cotton and a little polyester. So what's wrong with me wearing a garment, a shirt, uh, or pants, or socks that have a mixture of two kinds of, uh, of fabrics? Well, these and many other laws or prohibitions in the Old Testament were designed to keep the Israelites from some of the worship practices of the people that were around them, like the Canaanites and the Moabites. Uh, you know, the Canaanites believed in what's called uh, uh, sympathetic magic. It's, uh, it's a, a magic that the Canaanites believed in that if they mixed two things that were related together, that it would create increased fertility of one of those or both of those things. So they believed that if you mixed two kinds of seed in a, uh, in a field, that it would increase the fertility of both. If you mixed two different kinds of cows together, if you bred them, it would increase fertility. And they didn't believe these things from a practical standpoint. There was no science in it. They weren't breeding or mixing in order to bring about uh, better attributes. They were mixing them because of their beliefs in magic, in, in idolatry. And so they would mix these things, they would try and marry them together so that they would magically produce better offspring. 
but they, they basically believed that mixing things produced greater fertility. And so the, these cautions, these prohibitions are designed by God to keep the Israelite people from slipping into these unbiblical, ungodly beliefs in magic that the Bible forbids. And so that was one of the things that is, being, is happening here. Uh, another thing, like look at the fabrics. Um, you know, there's that aspect to it, but also there's the aspect of trying to keep the people from looking like something that they shouldn't look like. So, for example, in Old Testament times, if you go and read the book of Exodus, uh, there's a description of how to make the garments that the high priest would wear. And he would wear this robe, and then he had this apron-like thing that he wore over the robe that was called an ephod. And the, the, the robe was made of pure linen, but the ephod was made of mixing multiple colors of yarn and linen and gold thread all together, mixing of these different uh, types of fabric together to create this, this beautifully colored ephod, this apron that went over the front of the priest, the high priest. And so one of the reasons for this prohibition about mixing fabrics is so that no one would mix fabrics and try to accidentally or purposefully make themselves look like the high priest. Uh, uh, an equivalent that we would have today is like a law that uh, forbids us in the United States from impersonating a police officer by wearing a policeman's uniform and wearing a badge and presenting ourselves as a policeman. That's illegal in every state in our country. Um, but the reason for it is so that we're not impersonating someone whom we are not. So one of the reasons for this law is you're not supposed to mix these fabrics and make yourself look like a high priest or try to imperson uh, impersonate a high priest. So there are all these reasons, but let me ask you this. If you didn't understand the history that's behind these laws, would you understand them? I would dare to say that many of you listening right now, this is the first time that this history has been unpacked on this passage. But doesn't it give you a greater understanding of the meaning and intent that God has behind giving this passage to the Israelites? Of course it does. So understanding the history, the culture, the background is so important to understanding the passages that we read. Let me give you a New Testament example. If you go into the book of John, early in the book of John, we read about Jesus's very first uh, miracle. It's turning the water into wine at this wedding feast that Jesus went to. And in John 2.6, uh, uh, Jesus's mom has gone to him. They've run out of wine at this wedding ceremony, which was a huge no-no. And, and Jesus's mom goes to Jesus and says, can't you do something? And look at what it says in John 2, 6. It says, Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus tells the servants of this wedding feast, Go grab the water out of those jars, and when you bring it to the people, see what happens. And of course, the water has been turned into this beautiful, high-quality wine. There's even a, a comment in this passage uh, where the, the guy who's organizing this wedding ceremony 
comes to the groom and is like, why did you wait to serve the best wine, the wine that Jesus had turned from water into wine? Why did you save the best wine for last? Don't you know you're supposed to serve the best wine on the front end and the cheaper wine on the back end? Because once everybody's had their drinks uh, and they've, they're a little buzzed or whatever, they're not as concerned about it being the cheaper wine. So Jesus had turned this water from these jars into this very high-quality wine. But in verse 6, John 2, 6, that I read you a moment ago, it says that these six stone water jars were there for the Jewish rites of purification. So what's the history? What's the context of these six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification? Well, when you would go to a wedding ceremony, a wedding feast, most of the time when you entered the venue, there would be these these big stone jars or bowls sitting there. And you would put your feet inside of these stone bowls and wash your feet really good. Get all the the grime off of them from walking in the dirt all day. Uh, Get the smell off of them so that when you entered into the wedding feast where there's this all this food being served and this big banquet taking place, you would not, your feet at least, would not smell and they wouldn't be gross and they wouldn't be dirty. Uh, They they wouldn't look nasty. And, And so think about this for a second. Jesus In this very first miracle, if you don't understand the history or the context, you would read it and just think, oh, what a cool miracle. But when you understand the history and the culture and the context, you understand that Jesus is telling us a gospel message. He is sending a message to the people saying, I don't care how dirty or how terrible of a sinner you are. It doesn't matter how gross, how disgusting of a sinner you are. I as the Savior of the world, can still purify you. I can still rescue you from your sins, and I can make you into the highest quality of follower of God. You see, even this miracle that seemingly does not have a message to it, when you understand the history and the culture and the context, you realize that there is a beautiful message of salvation in this seemingly non-messaged miracle. See, Jesus was always sending messages by what he did and what he said. But you'll miss many of those messages, many of those teachings, if you don't know the history, the culture, and the context. And let me just say this. You know, this series is very much a journey of of intellect. It's a lot about studying God's word and the do's and don'ts and the practicalities. But I cannot tell you this account from John chapter 2 about Jesus turning the water into wine and using the most disgusting water that could be found in that building at the time to turn it into this beautiful wine and how that relates to us as disgusting, nasty sinners in need of a Savior to transform us. I can't mention this story without asking you if you believe in Jesus. You know, some of you listening right now, maybe you don't believe in Jesus, but maybe this amazing miracle and some of the things we've been unpacking, maybe this gives you hope that God can save you, and he can. And so I want you to take a moment and uh, think about what Jesus has done. You see, Jesus loves you so much that he came to this earth. He died on a cross to rescue you from your sins. 
And three days later, he rose from the grave so that we would know that he truly is God's one and only unique son. And we would know that he has victory over sin and death and that he can rescue us from sin and death. And please hear me, without Jesus, your eternity is destined to a place of eternal suffering. Your sin has condemned you to that. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, he provides you a rescue out of that eternal suffering and gives you instead eternal life if you would believe in him. And if you've got questions, if you want to know more about what it looks like to believe in Jesus, I want you to reach out to us. Uh, there's a, a link in the post of this video, and it'll take you to the contact us page of our website. I want you to click that link and go over to that contact us page, fill that out, and I will reach out to you this week, and I would love to answer any questions that you might have about Jesus and following him, believing in him, what that looks like. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Now, I've unpacked John chapter 2, but let me unpack a couple of other passages. Uh, one of them is Revelation 3, that passage uh, that I told you to turn to. So turn now to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 14. And let me, uh, as you're turning to Revelation 3, 14, let me explain what's going on here. This book, the book of Revelation, was written by John, who was one of Jesus' immediate followers. And John is having this vision uh, he, he's having a vision, uh, and he's up in heaven. Uh, he's envisioning being in heaven, and Jesus is speaking to him. And Jesus, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, has given John messages that he wants John to deliver to seven churches uh, that are in what is now Turkey. And one of those churches is a church in the city called Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was a, a city that was part of a tri-city, a three-city complex. It included Heropolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. Colossae is the same city uh, that Paul wrote to the church in what we have in, in the book of Colossians. So this is in what is now Turkey. Uh, there's three cities. They're pretty close to each other, about five or six miles from one another, and, and they're closely related. They, they do business together. They're on this massive road, um, and listen to what Jesus tells the city, uh, the church in the city of Laodicea, starting in verse 14. It says, And the angel of the church of Laodicea write this, The words of Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would you that you were either cold or hot? So, because you are lukewarm... Uh, Sorry, I lost my place. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, so, uh, an interesting fact uh, about this, Jesus is talking about this church's works not being uh, hot or cold, but they're lukewarm and they're disgusting to him. And he, he's so revolted by their lukewarmness that he will spit them out of his mouth. Now, we can read that and go, okay, I understand it. But to the Laodiceans, the, the people of the church of Laodicea, this was a very personal message to them. So, so remember, I just mentioned that Laodicea is part of a tri-city complex. It's actually the middle city of this tri-city complex. So from Laodicea, uh, it sits on one edge of the valley. On the other edge of the valley was Heropolis. And from Laodicea, 
you could look over to Heropolis and you would see this beautiful white outcropping along the valley wall as it went up. And here's a picture of it. So as they're looking uh, over to Heropolis, they're looking up and there's this white, weird uh, outcropping from the, the, the side of the valley as the, the valley slopes up. It almost looks like snow has been dropped on this one specific spot is what it kind of looks like. But in reality, what that is, is there are hot springs, and the white is the mineral deposits left from these hot springs. And in this day and age, when Revelation was written, the people of the area would travel, many people would travel very long distances to come to Heropolis to sit and soak in these basically hot springs, because the uh, the the minerals and the salts in these hot springs and the heat of the water itself was very good medicinally to the people. It it'd be like you being sore, having aches, and so you go and you take a a hot bath with Epsom salts in it. So people would travel from far and wide to go and lay and and soak in these hot springs in the minerals that these hot springs let off. And Heropolis was very famous in that day and age, and is actually still famous today, for these wonderful hot springs where you can come and soak. But to the south of Laodicea, further down the valley, was the city of Colossae. And Colossae sits at the base of a very tall mountain in that region. The mountain's tall enough that there's usually ice, there's usually snow at the top. And there was a river that flowed out of that ice cap down beside the city of Colossae and provided constant cold drinking water to that city. But Laodicea had neither one. Laodicea had two very small spring or small streams that, that wrapped around the city, went on either side of the city, but that, the, those springs did not provide even close to enough water for the people to drink. Uh, and so Laodicea built a pipeline, an aqueduct, that pumped water from a hot spring six miles away down to the city of Laodicea, the, these two large pipes. And so it would travel down these pipes over a six-mile span, and by the time it came out uh, at the other end in the city of Laodicea, the water had turned this yucky, lukewarm, tempted water. As a matter of fact, there are men and women of that day and age who write about how disgusting the water was in Laodicea, how the people hated it themselves, but it was their only source of drinking water. And so the water was not good for bathing and for medicinal purposes, and it wasn't all that good for drinking either. It was disgusting. And the people of Laodicea, despite the fact that Laodicea was very prominent and, and had a lot of great things about it, the people of Laodicea hated their water. And so when Jesus gives this condemnation to John to send to the people, the church of Laodicea, and he says that you're neither, your works are neither hot nor cold, but they're lukewarm, and I will spit them out of my mouth, or I'll spit you out of, your mouth, out of my mouth. That was a very personal response to the people of Laodicea. They would have connected, identified, and understood that passage at a level that we can't understand it unless we begin to study the history and the culture and the context of that city. And so once you understand that, it brings this passage to a whole new light. It brings you better understanding 
of what the people of Laodicea would have heard and how they would have received it and interpreted it. So historical knowledge brings a new perspective to this, this writing. And, and this, this is true of writings all over the Bible, New and Old Testament. So knowing the historical setting can bring new light to a passage. But what about where the history affects how we actually apply the passage today? I want you to take your Bibles now and, and turn to that second passage, Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. I want to read verses 1 through 7, and then I'm going to explain a little bit of the historical context to help us understand this passage a little better. Uh, John, or, or, or Romans 13, 1 through 7 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You see, Paul is encouraging and not encouraging he's actually telling he's commanding the people of Rome to obey the governing authorities now this passage has been used a lot in this day and age and I'll be honest there are good reasons and there are bad reasons for this being used but when you understand the historical context of what's been taking place it puts this passage in a whole new light so let me explain what's happening here in this passage. You see, in 49 AD, uh, Claudius, Emperor Claudius, kicked all of the Jews out of the city of Rome because of all of the controversy that was uh, going around about Christianity. And so the understanding amongst the Romans was that Christianity was a sect of Judaism, um, and that's a, a right understanding. And so in order to deal with this controversy that the Christians, uh, Christian faith had created, uh, Claudius just had the, the, the Jews kicked out of the city of Rome. They lost their businesses and their homes and their livelihood. If they had possessions they, that they couldn't take with them, they lost all of those things. But then six years later in 55 AD, Claudius allowed um, the people to come back. They, he allowed the Jewish people to return to the city of Rome, and many of them did return. But they returned to someone else owning their business and their home and the possessions that they couldn't take with them. They had basically had to start all over again with their lives, and it was hard for a lot of them. They lost so much. And so Paul 
writes this passage, we believe that he wrote this around 57 AD, which means, you know, he wrote this a year to two years after the Jewish people have returned to the city of Rome, devastating and devastated and having to start over because they were unfairly kicked out of the city by the Roman emperor. Paul, in the midst of that historical setting, tells them to be subject to the governing authorities. Isn't that wild? I don't know about you, but if Paul had told me after I lost everything because the leader of the country had taken everything from me or allowed everything to be taken from me, and I've been allowed to come back and none of that stuff is giving, being given back to me, and Paul is now telling me that I'm supposed to be subject to this emperor, I'd be looking at Paul like, what? I'm not doing that. That doesn't make any sense at all. But Paul tells us that this is the way of God, that God is sovereign. He's in control of all these things, and he works through the governing authorities to bring about his purposes. And we, as followers of Christ, are to be subjectioned to those leaders. I'm not telling you how to apply this. That's for another message. But knowing the historical setting, knowing that the people that Paul is writing to have been very unfairly treated, their lives have been destroyed because of the government, knowing that, that Paul is writing to these kinds of people in this historical setting, I'm telling you that you need to maybe take a step back and reevaluate how you interpret this passage based on this new understanding of the historical setting. I'm telling you that knowing this history, you must sit down through the Holy Spirit and wrestle with this passage. And you need to be humble enough to allow the Holy Spirit to shape your views and your interpretation of this passage. You know, this isn't the only place where the New Testament encourages us to do things like this. First uh, Peter, uh, if you've got questions about how to live for Christ in a culture or a nation that is does not follow Christ or is slowly turning away from Christ that like America seems to be doing, if you want to know how to live in a culture that's unchristian, go read First Peter. And First Peter chapter two, verses 13 through 15 says this: "Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see, Peter is in the, a similar context. He's writing to a group of people who are actively being hunted and persecuted because they follow Jesus. Same thing. They're losing businesses. They're getting arrested. Uh, their livelihoods, their families are on the line. Everything they value is at risk. And Peter is telling them, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or the governors or whoever. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. Again, you need to sit down and wrestle with this passage, knowing the historical setting and context of the people that Peter and Paul are writing to. So 
knowing the history of what was taking place in the Old Testament and the New Testament is very important to our understanding. It helps us understand who the writer is writing to and how the, the people would have heard, what the writer's intentions might be. And again, we can't insert our assumptions and think that we have a good understanding of the meaning of a passage if we don't take the time to understand what's happening historically and within the culture that that passage was written in. So how can you know the history? I think that's a good question. I want to give you some practical advice, some, some pointers here. Before reading a book of the Bible, grab a study Bible. If you don't own one, go grab the, go buy yourself an NIV study Bible or an ESV study Bible or a, a New American Standard study Bible or a, a CSV study. They're, they're great translations. And here in a couple of weeks, I'm actually going to talk about translations. But find yourself a really good study Bible because at the beginning of every book of the Bible in a study Bible, it gives you the historical setting gives you the time that it was written and what was taking place in the world in that day and age and to the, what was happening to the people who were receiving that book of the Bible. And so it'll help you understand better. Uh, go online. Do some research before you start a, a new book of the Bible. You know, before you pick up the book of Matthew or Revelation or, or, or Romans, sit down online and just Google history of the book of Romans or history of the book of Matthew. You know, just do a little research on what is being taught or, or what, was being, what was happening historically and culturally before you pick the book up so you can understand that book better. Uh, another recommendation that I would give you is go to YouTube and find uh, the channel called The Bible Project or do a Google search for The Bible Project. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization that makes these uh, videos, and one of the sets of videos that they make is they have a introductory video for every book of the Bible that explains the history, uh, uh, the background, um, explains the structure and the the outline and the the themes of that book. Uh, and so, you know, if if you want an easy way to understand the history and the background. Go watch one of these, you know, seven-minute videos on that particular book of the Bible, and it will give you better understanding. But I want to go back to my big idea. Don't be lazy when approaching God's Word. Don't be hasty. Don't be lazy. Don't, don't approach it just to read the words and not fully understand what the words are trying to tell us. Take your time. Do the work. Uh, sit down and understand the history and the culture, and the context, the geography of the, the people that the book is being written to and what's happening there so that you can better understand what that passage, what that book is trying to communicate to you. Join me in a word of prayer. Almighty God, we thank you so much for today. And we pray, Lord, today that you would help us to better understand your word. Help us to understand what it's saying by helping us understand the history, the context, the culture, the geography. Lord, our desire is not that we would just be able to check off that we read a few chapters, but that we would sit down with your word and that through understanding, through your Holy Spirit and through work, that you would change our lives. As Romans 12, 2 says that 
through the work that we do in your word, that you would transform us by renewing our minds. So Lord, help us to not be hasty or lazy when we approach God's word, but instead that we would approach it with a reverence, with a seriousness, and that we would seek to understand as best as we can what you're trying to tell us through your word. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.